Welcome to episode 24 of Two Bald Guys, where today we will be examining the results of the recent elections with a national expert from the Elections Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My name is Eric Giordano, and I am the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Institute for Public Policy and Service, also known as WIPS, and I am very happy to see my kofefe in crime, Dave Anderson. Hi, Dave. Greetings, Eric, and I am Dave Anderson. I'm a senior policy fellow at WIPS, and it's great to see you too. Uh, for those not familiar with WIPS, we're a unit of the University of Wisconsin system founded in 2007 with a mission to educate and engage citizens, develop future leaders, and bring the resources of the university to address community-identified needs. You know, Dave, it's hard to believe that our last episode of Two Ball Guys was about a month ago when we did our election preview, and a lot has happened since then. Now, originally, we planned to take a two-week uh, hiatus as our staff was busy preparing to host the Torbo Wisconsin Conference, which, by the way, had over 800 res uh, registrants, and it was a wonderful event, and we're so grateful to everyone who made that event possible for, for everyone who attended. In addition, my dear friend, our dear friend, Luke, Rudolph, our, our crack producer, and I were very concerned, Dave, when we learned that over that time period, you also came down with COVID-19. And I'm so very glad that you made it through that. Um, how fun was that experience, by the way? Well, Eric, thank you very much. And yes, I can now say that I've experienced COVID-19 up close and personal. Uh, and that combined with Thanksgiving really got me thinking how grateful I am to have made a full recovery without any complications. But let me tell you, I lost about the entire month of, uh, of November uh, and it came on on election day of all, of, of all times. So, but uh, it was, it was really quite an experience. Yeah. Well, again, really glad you're doing well. And, and, uh, you know, since we just passed the Thanksgiving holiday, I also want to share my thanks because my son, who's 23 years old, also got COVID and, and had a little rough go of it, but he recovered and doing well. So, you know, it's, it's definitely taking its toll for sure. Um, speaking of being grateful, our show would not be possible without the crack support of our producer, Luke Rudolph, for whom we are very grateful. And Luke, how was your Thanksgiving? Hey, gentlemen, my Thanksgiving was great. I was thankful to be able to overeat and shirk all responsibilities. And another thing I was grateful for is that this show gives me a chance to practice my lame humor on two people who I know will actually appreciate it. So this is a short one for you, but did you know that a plateau is the highest form of flattery? Oh boy, Luke, I, I don't know what we do without you. Perhaps we could get that 10 seconds of our life uh, back for one, but um, we're very grateful for the work that you, that you do uh, on the, for the two ball guy show. And uh, we're pleased to have you as our, as our producer. Hey, that reminds me, Eric and Luke. Uh, well, this is where I would usually tell a ball joke or use a hair pun. Um, I really wanted to take a moment, given the topic of our show today, to remind listeners how important it is to make sure that you really examine billboards during an election campaign and before you vote. When I went to cast my vote uh, just uh, about a month ago, I ended up voting for a local real estate agent and didn't even realize it until after I turned my ballot in. So you really got to pay attention to those billboards. I hate when that's saying. Yeah, thanks, Dave. 
that's a real uh, energizer for uh, civic participation. <laughs> I just hope our loyal viewers appreciate that incredible demonstration of mature humor from both of you. And, and hey, that reminds me, we forgot to tell you, Luke, that Dave and I were on a Zoom call yesterday, and out of the blue, one of the participants on the call told us that she regularly enjoys the Two Ball Guys show. So we can now confirm that we have three loyal viewers. So I uh, just thought we should uh, mention that because we'll have to keep reminding people about that. And speaking of true stories, did you know that in the late 1980s when my then fiance, now my wife started, that she started calling me the economy. And do you know why she started calling me the economy? It's because my hair began showing strong signs of a recession. Get it? Uh, wow, Eric. Well, given the state of the economy, I can only imagine how disappointed she was in her investment. That's all I can say. Oh, yeah, um, you know, I'm Eric. Sure she'd agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of investment, uh, this is the time of the year organizations like WIPS make an annual appeal for support. So I just wanted to remind our viewers, our three viewers, uh, that this would be a great time to become a friend of WIPS. Our programming is funded by donations from gen generous individuals uh, like those of you who are, are tuned in today. Um, and uh, for an annual gift of just $75, you can become a friend of WIPS. For an annual contribution of $250, um, you can become a patron of WIPS. And there are really some, there are really some terrific benefits and a special gift for friends and patrons, which I happen to have here. We have a WIPS um, thermos, uh, thermal cup or whatever it is. And what I love is the embossed little uh, portfolio that I use all the time to keep uh, to keep my notes. So to join, just visit whips.org and click on the donate button. And that's how you become a friend of WIPS or a patron of WIPS. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, money can buy a lot of things, including WIPS friendship. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks. And it gives me uh, a lot of pleasure to introduce today's topic. And I know, Dave, you're gonna introduce the actual guest, but today's topic is entitled the 2020 elections what happened and what's next. And I just wanna remind everyone today that we will not be taking audience questions for the show today because we actually taped the show yesterday by the time you're watching to accommodate our guest's busy schedule. And as he reminded us a minute ago, he's been doing hundreds of interviews uh, during this election season. So we're really grateful that he was able to take time to join us because he is definitely in very high demand. Um, however, you can still leave your comments in the Facebook chat session or by emailing us at info at whips.org. And it really is a pleasure for me to welcome Dr. Barry Burden. Uh, Barry Burden is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and director of the Elections, uh, Elections Research Center and is the Lyons Family Chair in Electoral Politics. His research and teaching are based in American politics with an emphasis on electoral politics and representation. He is co-editor of The Measure of American Elections, author of Personal Roots of Representation, and co-author of Why Americans Split Their Tickets, Campaigns, Competition, and Divided Government. Among many published articles is in some of the most prestigious journals in his field. So, uh, Barry Burton, welcome. We're glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for getting those jokes out of the way. And I'm turning on my video. I'm trying at least. There we go. Oh, 
Oh, it's coming and going. The gremlins are in the system again today. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry about that. Thank you for handling the jokes. Uh, you did an excellent job, and I'm glad to talk about non-joke things with you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna jump right in here. So, who do you think won the presidential election this year? Well, I, it's more than thinking. I'm quite confident that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won both the popular vote and the electoral vote. It looks as though Biden has beaten Trump by somewhere around four and a half or five percent in the popular vote once all is said and done. It's going to take a, a few more weeks probably to get votes in from places like New York that are straggling. Uh, and in the Electoral College, the breakdown appears to be 306 for Biden and 232 for Trump. That's almost a perfect reverse image of what happened in the Electoral College four years ago when Donald Trump won. Uh, again, I don't have any doubt that he was the victor in the Electoral College back then. So there are still disputes and some kind of voices on the fringes debating whether the election was valid or had the integrity it needed to have. But I'm quite confident that this election was well run and that the results we see reported by the mainstream media are a fair reflection of what voters wanted to do this year. Um, with all of the discussion that you, you just alluded to uh, going on, continuing to go on, uh, relative to the election results, do you see any foreseeable path to a second Trump presidency at this point with the challenges that are still out there and the concerns that have been voiced and raised and, and are currently being discussed? I don't see a path to a second term that would start in January. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that Joe Biden will be sworn in on January 20th on Inauguration Day. There are lawsuits underway in several states, including Wisconsin, where there are, I think, still five live lawsuits and maybe more to come. There are challenges and hearings and, and other things happening in a variety of states. I don't think any of those has very much chance of overturning the result in a given state. And the likelihood that Trump could actually reverse the outcome in multiple states, which is what would be needed to reverse the Electoral College outcome, seems exceedingly unlikely. I don't think there's a uh, a stomach for state legislators to appoint electors directly, for example. Most of the lawsuits are either being tossed out of court or um, just aren't timely or aren't appropriate uh, where they're being filed. So um, I, I don't really see any plausible way that could happen. Uh, Dr. Bird, there, there's, let's back up a little bit to the, to the process, the election process, uh, especially the national election, but, but obviously local as well. There was a lot of controversy uh, over mail-in voting. Can you explain the difference to our viewers between mail-in voting versus absentee voting? And then I'll have a follow-up uh, after that. You know, there aren't really firm definitions of these things, but practically speaking, there's no meaningful difference between absentee voting and mail-in voting. Voting by mail, voting absentee, those are sort of synonymous. They, they get used in different ways in different states, depending on how statutes are written but it's essentially someone requesting a ballot that's sent to them by mail. And then the voter has the right to either return it by mail or to bring it in or leave it at Dropbox or some other means. Now there are a few states, I think it's five states this year that are entirely vote by mail. And so that's a little confusing because they think of themselves as vote by mail states. They distribute all ballots automatically to registered voters without the voters having to make a request. Those states are mo mostly out west. It's places like California this year, Utah, Oregon has been doing this for a long time. Hawaii is now in that boat. So that's a separate system, I would say, a separate regime, and it has been around for a while.
but most states are like Wisconsin, that voters are, have largely been voting in person before 2020, but this year have the right to vote either by mail or by absentee, whichever you'd like to call it. You know, because there was so much um, language used about potential fraud of, of this mail-in voting approach, um, and we all know that the reason uh, a lot of these states beyond those five you mentioned expanded mail-in voting was because of the pandemic, right? Um, but do you think that mail-in voting is, is here to stay in this country in many states that didn't previously have it? Or has there been sort of a poison pill thrown in there because of all the language that was used to cast doubt on the you know, veracity or, or effectiveness of that form of voting? I think both of those things are right. It is likely to stick a bit more than it would have without a pandemic. So many people experienced voting by mail for the first time this year and liked it. <laughs> That's been the experience out West as states rolled out voting by mail opportunities. Voters grew accustomed to it and became comfortable and you know, got good at doing what is a little bit of a complicated process. So I think a number of people who voted by mail or at least received a ballot by mail this year for the first time will continue to want to stick with that mode in 2022 and 2024. But there's also now a partisan element to that that there wasn't six months ago or 10 months ago in that Democrats have really flocked to that method because they were hearing that from their party leaders that they ought to be voting by mail if they can. And Democrats were generally treating the pandemic precautions as more serious. And you know, we're sort of more cautious about going into public and wanting to, wanting to use the mail system Republicans, in contrast, were hearing from their leaders, I think, more mixed messages. Some Republican leaders were encouraging their supporters to vote by mail, but many others, like President Trump, were disparaging vote by mail and alleging that there was uh, fraud happening. And also surveys show that Republican voters were less likely to observe some of the cautions that Democratic voters were. Partly that's because where Republicans and Democrats live, Democrats were in urban areas, which were the places that were hardest hit by the pandemic early on. Republicans more likely to be in suburbs or rural communities where it wasn't as immediate a concern. I think it's also a kind of sense of pride for Trump supporters to go to the polls in person and show that they can stand up to the virus in the way that Trump has said he has stood up to the virus. So it has all of this sort of rhetoric and imagery and cheerleading for parties wrapped up in it, along with the public health element. Um, but on both the Republican side and the Democratic side, there was more voting by mail this year. And I think we probably won't remain at that same high level in four years, but there will be more mail voting going forward than we had seen before the pandemic. Great, thanks. You know, I was watching, I was telling Dave, I was watching um, an interview with the former SACT uh, campaign manager for the Trump administration, Brad uh, Parscale, and he made it pretty clear in part of his interview that the strategy that he had tried to implement wasn't fully executed, was to really cast a lot of doubt on the integrity of the election way before the election began, and, and frankly, to begin litigation even before the election began. Now, he was upset because the after he was let go, the Trump campaign really stopped its it sort of process and then only started litigating after the election happened, or at least in a major way. So really what I'm getting at is, did the Trump campaign in general uh, and, and their attempt to undermine the confidence in the, in the electoral process, did that end up actually backfiring? Did that end up suppressing some of the likely voters for Trump or not? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that. It's a, it's a common question out there whether Trump essentially shot himself in the foot. 
and maybe is doing that again in the Georgia runoffs where there, some of his allies at least are expressing concern about voting in that system. I don't think we know. I, I will say the Republican turnout was really impressive. I think we're going to talk about voter turnout shortly. That, that high level we saw this year couldn't have happened with Democrats alone. Trump supporters also turned out at very good rates, heavily on election day. So I think the pandemic and the messages about voting by mail that Trump was offering didn't really stop his supporters. They, you know, they appeared in person during early voting and on election day itself. You know, the one group where you might imagine that Trump's messages would have hurt him would have been among older voters, senior citizens who were in a vulnerable group to begin with. That's been the CDC recommendation. If you're over 65, you should be more cautious. And senior citizens are more common in places like Florida, which looked like it was a swing state going into the election. There was also some polling that indicated that senior citizens were turning on Republicans a little bit this year. They had, they had supported Trump four years ago by a few points, including in Wisconsin, but maybe there was going to be a gray revolt this year, as some people were calling it. That didn't materialize. In, in the exit polls, Trump still won the 65 plus group and then did worse in the younger age groups, especially in the youngest cohort. So even there, I'm not sure that the message about voting by mail really hurt him, but it's a great question. I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that exactly. Um, it certainly didn't stop turnout from hitting really record levels. You know, your, your comment about mixed messages is, is really interesting to me. Um, and I wonder, does, does this election demonstrate that the electoral process is actually working pretty well? Or does it demonstrate that there's some fundamental flaws with the way we conduct our elections in this country? What, you know, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the good news is the system survived and the electoral college process will play out in the next couple of weeks and we'll have an inauguration in January. We'll have new members of Congress sworn in even before that. Uh, there were no substantial problems at the polls on election day, especially. We didn't hear many stories about long lines or skirmishes at the polls. There was no violence after the election, which was a concern some people had. So there are a number of wonderful things to celebrate about the election. I think you know, our, the concerns I had about the Electoral College going into the 2020 cycle became exacerbated. A lot of the things we are now arguing about as a country are only arguments that could be had because of the Electoral College. The allegations about machines in Georgia or drop boxes in Wisconsin and other places that are being litigated wouldn't be litigated if it was a national popular vote or ranked choice voting or some other method to choose the president. It's because these states get into the spotlight and a small number of votes in one place can turn an outcome or a few states can change an outcome that it, it really encourages parties to fight about the rules and you know, for partisans to dig in. Uh, if it were a national popular vote, the story would have been over on election night when it was clear that Biden was running up a total and would continue to do so. So I, I do think the Electoral College and its flaws become more apparent when you have partisan disputes. And even, you know, the other concern going into 2020 that didn't materialize was concerns about security, about hacking or those, those kinds of efforts. Then there was some evidence for that in 2016. That also is encouraged by the Electoral College because a hacker merely needs to get into the system in Wisconsin or North Carolina, Pennsylvania or someplace and cause some mischief in order to sow suspicion or discord or even you know, attempt to change the results. 
with a national popular vote, it would be very unlikely that any hacker could infiltrate enough systems in enough places for that to take place. So I, I, I was, the other thing I would say is we ought to be really proud and thankful for our election officials who made this happen. They have been working like mad since early summer when it was clear that the pandemic was going to turn this election upside down. And they've had to adjust by recruiting new poll workers, opening new polling places, dealing with PPE, you know, hand, handling a vote by mail system that they were not equipped to handle and where state laws were not really set up uh, to accommodate. So lots of good news about this election, but I still think there are some fundamental concerns about the election system that we ought to address after all is said and done. You know, clearly there was an effort to undermine confidence in, in, in the, the electoral process in this uh, in this campaign, do, do you do you think do you think that was successful? That 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 in fact confidence has been undermined in our system of electoral uh, in our electoral process. And what can we do to restore that general confidence uh, in our elections? If if in fact you think um, uh, they were somewhat successful in undermining that confidence? Well, confidence is lower uh, given the surveys we've seen since election day, and even the ones before the election when it, concerns were being raised at that point. Uh, there are real worries. Uh, part of that is a pattern that happens after every election. The supporters of the winning party, typically after the election, report higher levels of confidence in the system, and the losers are a little more suspicious and report lower levels. So there's sort of a flipping back and forth that happens from one election to the next, but it's typically a few percentage points. You know, Democrats were a little more confident after 2012 and a little less confident after 2016. 2020 has taken that trend to a new level because you have one of the candidates disparaging the system months before the election. He actually had been disparaging the election system since 2015. In the 2016 election, which he won, uh, he alleged that there were illegal votes by non-citizens in California and those kinds of things. So it really has brought down levels of confidence among Republicans who are supporting Trump and hearing those messages. I think there are things we can do to try to combat the low levels of confidence, which I think are not grounded in real facts about the system and maybe aren't even sincerely held. They're just sort of reflecting what party leaders are saying. One is to have election officials just continue to remind people how the system works and to be transparent about everything they do. That can include testing of machines and showing people the ballots and letting the counting be publicly observed telling the voters what's happening as the process unfolds. Uh, live cams were used in places like Michigan and Wisconsin to show the counting of absentee ballots. So I think continued transparency and information from authoritative sources who are actually running elections and have professional experience continues to be necessary, but it's not enough because we had that mostly in 2020 and yet we saw confidence drop. What you really need are leaders in both parties to assure their followers that the system worked properly. And you're hearing that from Democrats, but of course Democrats won, so it's not hard for them to say that. But you're not hearing it from Republican leaders outside of Trump, members of Congress or governors who could step up and say, the election was well run. It was as secure as any election in American history, probably, very high turnout, very few problems with, so far at least, as we know, rejected ballots and lines and other things that might emerge no systematic evidence of fraud happening in any meaningful or um, widespread way. 
but right now we're not hearing that. And so it really has become such a strong partisan message that it's easy for voters to sort of fall into those camps. And what you need are some credible folks in both parties to say that message. And, and so far that hasn't emerged, but that would be the number one recommendation I would offer. Eric, I just want to jump in with one follow-up yeah. question. Earlier, uh, earlier this fall, we had on our show uh, Congressman, former Congressman Tom Petri from Fond du Lac and Sarah Godlewski, our, our state treasurer, uh, talking about Project Vote Safe here in, here in Wisconsin, which, which I think it's kind of getting close to what you were suggesting needs to happen, where you've got a bipartisan effort to really uh, shed some light on, on our electoral process. Do you, do you think, so So I, I guess reading in between the lines of what you said, uh, efforts like that should probably continue and prop, should probably be stepped up, right? And would, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I really love that effort. I was aware of that happening before election day. You know, our current attorney general, Josh Call, was part of that. The former attorney general, J.B. Van Hollen, was part of that. Mm -hmm. Those groups are quieter after the election. They were really geared up to focus on messaging going into election day which was helpful, but I think we need that to continue. And we need current electeds, not just people who were in office at one point, but people who have credibility because they're in office today to be part of that conversation as well. And that's the piece that unfortunately is missing. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Thanks, Dr. Burden. And we'd like to switch a little bit to the election results. Um, we'd like to get your take on the exit polls and sort of what you learned in terms of how the demographics broke towards either Biden or Trump. Um, what did the election hinge on? Which groups moved a little bit this way or a little bit that way uh, to influence the outcome? And, and were there any surprises that you, that you found or that you could point to? Yeah, I think there were some surprises. Now, keep in mind that this election is not wildly different in its outcome from the one four years ago. You know, the victor is a Democrat rather than a Republican, but there were still some very close swing states in the Midwest that decided it. The popular vote still went to the Democrat by a few million votes. So because of that stability, the patterns of demographic groups are also pretty stable from what we would have seen four years ago. No radical changes. But there, were, there was enough movement on the margins in some groups, obviously, to make things flip. And I think the, the key piece of that that I have seen from all the evidence is that it was largely white, educated voters, predominantly, but not only in suburbs, who moved away from Trump and towards Biden that helped flip some key states and key areas. Uh, we knew that Trump was in trouble in the suburbs back in 2016. He didn't do as well there as, say, Mitt Romney or John McCain or other Republicans had. But it appears to have been exacerbated this time around. And so it was a small movement among a pretty big block of white voters who really tipped things in the direction of Joe Biden. It was not greater turnout of minority voters. Uh, Democrats were looking to black and Hispanic voters to help them out. Uh, there was a lot of concern about the declining turnout of black and Hispanic voters four years ago. And I think Democrats put some of the problems of their campaign on not mobilizing those groups effectively enough. Those groups did not appear to turn out at higher rates this year than four years ago. In Wisconsin, for example, turnout rose by, I think, five or six points over 2016. But in the city of Milwaukee, where the largest groupings of African-American and Hispanic voters are, turnout was pretty flat from 2016, maybe a point increase. So not doing what the rest of the state was doing. And the margin that Biden got there was about the same margin that Hillary Clinton did four years ago. So despite what some commentators have said, 
Biden's victory is not due to massive turnout in urban areas or great showings among non-white voters. In fact, Black and Hispanic voters nationally look as though they gave Trump a little bit more support this time around, especially male Hispanic voters. That's the one group that really pops out for me among the minority populations. Um, Trump did pretty well there. And, um, and that was, I think, a surprise. It wasn't enough to put Trump over the top or to avoid his loss in some key swing states. But that is a, a little bit of shifting in the demographic coalitions from what we saw four years ago. It's certainly not the coalition that Obama put together in his two elections. Um, so so I, I think the racial and, Hispanic and, and ethnic uh, shifts are probably one of the most interesting narratives. We still saw great support among young people for Biden in the way we did for Clinton, maybe more so this year. I'll be really interested to see when all the data come in what the turnout of young people was. I, I just yeah. don't know. I just don't oh, know. Too bad. I was, that's what I was going to ask you about, <laughs> because it seems like every year the Democrats kind of hinge their, their hopes on you know, bringing out the young vote. And I'm really curious to know if that in, increased or not this, this time around. But yeah, we unfortunately can't really say from the exit polls themselves, it, there's not a good way to figure out what the composition of the voting electorate was. We can say that the 18 to 29 year olds were Democratic voters. It was about a margin of two to one, which was as big as Obama had gotten. But in terms of their participation rate, um, that's just gonna be one of the mysteries we have to sit on for a while. Were there some, were there some significant issues that played, or some key issues that played a significant role in voter decision-making and which candidate to, to vote for, do you think? Yeah, maybe more remarkable is the issues that didn't matter. There was no foreign policy discussion in this campaign at all. Zip. There's no Iran or nuclear deals or Syria or aside from trade relationships on the margins, there's really no discussion of that. Almost no discussion of immigration or building the wall along the southern border, which was a key promise of Trump's four years ago. So it's sort of amazing what is off the table. And I guess that's understandable given that the pandemic is front and center. It is everything, right? It's a public health issue. It's an economic issue. It's, a, it's an issue for schools uh, and you know, parents and, and teachers and others. So uh, that was front and center. Now the Elections Research Center, which I direct, did some polling this year in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And one of the questions we asked was what was the top issue for voters? And we gave a list of 11 issues. And what struck me was the partisan divide in what issues were important. For, for Biden voters, the pandemic was number one as a public health issue, it was the number one by far. Down below that was the economy and then kind of traditional democratic issues, healthcare, which never goes away as an issue, climate change and racial inequality. That was the list for Dems. For Trump voters, the pandemic was not the top issue, it was the economy. Trump voters really seem to want schools and businesses and governments to be operating in a pretty normal fashion and to get the economy back on track, really to get it back to the economy that looked so good before the pandemic, for which they gave Trump a lot of credit. Uh, so the economy was top issue for Trump voters. The pandemic was second, and then there wasn't a lot that popped up below that. The Supreme Court and abortion were kind of minor issues on the Republican side, despite the Amy Coney Barrett nomination happening just before election day. So it looks like Trump and Biden voters really had different views of the world. There wasn't really a consensus, even that the pandemic or the economy should be the central focus. And so there's a little bit of talking past one another rather than having a common 
debate or common conversation. I think that's part of a trend in American politics, unfortunately. You know, I'm going to reveal my wonkiness here because I've been really excited to ask you this question, <laughs> this next one, you know, because you're, you direct a center that uh, you just mentioned does a lot of polling. You did polling before the election. And the question is, why were the pre-election polls again so wrong? And now that's two presidential elections in a row. Now, you might argue, well, they were only off by a few percentage points, but those percentage points obviously matter because, you know, Biden only won by a few percentage points or less in, in a lot of states. So anyway, what do you make of the, the issue that we're having with polling and the accuracy of polling? Oh, we need to do a whole other show on this. It's, a, it's complicated. <laughs> some, some things we know and some things we don't know. So I'll, I'll try to suss out what I'm pretty sure about in terms of what, what went right and wrong and then kind of more speculative suggestions about what could have happened. Um, let's see. So first of all, one theory that's out there that was around in 2016 is that Trump supporters were shy or reluctant to reveal that they were voting for Trump. And so when Trump voters were interviewed, the theory goes, they didn't want to tell the interviewer that I, I, they were voting for Trump. And so they would say they were voting for someone else or they didn't know. And that led to an undercounting of Trump support. I see very little evidence for that. Uh, the American Association of Public Opinion Research, APOR, did a full postmortem on the 2016 election where they had an all-star panel of polling experts. They went looking for evidence that Republicans were shy in, in their, you know, saying they were going to support Trump, and that just didn't pan out. This year, the New York Times and other outlets have tried to find evidence for that and can't find it. Uh, it doesn't explain why someone like Susan Collins in Maine would overperform the polls. You'd have to believe there were shy Susan Collins supporters and she's a non-controversial moderate, you know, different from Trump in a variety of ways. Um, and by 2020, Republican voters were really on board with Trump in a way they were not in 2016. So any shyness, you know, it's hard to explain how you have rallies and boat parades and people with Trump flags and if they're shy about expressing their support. So there's very little evidence for that. But there does seem to be more evidence for the polls systematically missing some Republican voters, not just Trump voters, but Republican voters, because the polls were not only off about the Trump-Biden race, but also about Senate races around the country, in North Carolina, in Georgia, in Maine, in Iowa. Um, so it's more of a, it seems to be by now at least, more of a Republican miss than a Trump miss. Uh, we don't know why that is. Uh, again, one theory from 2016 was that the polls were not adequately including enough white voters with lower levels of education. That has been a problem in polling for many years. It's just easier to get more educated people to agree to do polls or they're more enthusiastic about doing polls. Uh, and it wasn't much of a problem before the mid-2000s, but at that point, the parties began to divide along educational lines. So pollsters have been very careful to make sure that they weight their surveys to ensure that they have enough educated and less educated college grads and non-college grads in the samples. But the truth is a lot of pollsters were doing that in 2016, including the Marquette Law Poll, and it was off. So waiting for education or making sure you have a proper educational mix in the sample, not enough. Um, there's also a theory floating around out there about telephone polls versus internet polls, and maybe you get a different kind of person. And so a, a lot of speculation this year about people not answering the phone or not wanting to talk to. Well, my survey was done on the internet 
and it was just as wrong as all the others. So it's not a, not a phone problem and not a shy voter who doesn't want to tell an interviewer because in our surveys, people were clicking answers uh, on, a, on a website. Um, so there does seem to be a group of people who are not being captured in polls. They're not just low educated white voters. They're not just Trump supporters who are kind of you know, unique uh, from other voters. Uh, there's some evidence that people who have lower levels of social trust and are less publicly oriented are also less willing or less interested in being part of surveys. So if you ask people other kinds of questions in the survey to try to get at their levels of trust in institutions or confidence in authorities outside of their, say, their families or their local schools and churches, uh, Trump and Republican voters appear to score lower on those indicators. And so they're less likely to be in the survey in the first place. That's a hard problem to solve if that's what's happening, but it at least gives us a clue as to what's going on. I think the other thing that went on in 2020 that was not happening in 2016 is that Democratic voters were overly enthusiastic about telling us they were voting and they wanted to do surveys. As COVID hit, actually response rates to telephone surveys went up for the first time. <laughs> they had been declining for a number of years. You know, the New York Times was getting one or 2% response rates in its telephone polls. And it nudged up a little bit this year, as did the Marquette poll. And I think especially once COVID hit, a lot of Democratic voters were at home, not in a workplace, and that made them available and maybe bored and focused on the news. And many of them were very eager to get rid of Donald Trump as president and wanted to say that in a survey. So the, the problem might be on the Democratic side as much as the Republican side, kind of over-enthusiasm among Biden folks, and then a, just a difficulty in wrangling some of the Republican voters. Uh, this is not something we can answer today. It's going to be a long-term project, I think, of the polling industry to figure out exactly what's happened and whether it's going to be an ongoing problem or this is something peculiar to the Trump era that will pass once he's gone from the scene. We just don't know. Well, yeah, I really appreciate that answer. No, no, sorry, Dave. Uh, and you're right, that's probably a whole show's worth, but uh, we really appreciate your thoughtfulness. Dave, we have time for one more, maybe? Yeah, and I was just gonna say from a, from a research standpoint, this is, this is the election that's gonna keep on giving, I think, in terms of, of uh, having plenty, plenty of stuff to look at as we, we look into the future. Um, I, do wanna, I, I do wanna touch on this issue of uh, voter participation. You mentioned it uh, a little bit earlier. What explains the, the, the record voter turnout? It, it seems kind of ironic to me that there was this effort to, to undermine confidence in the electoral process, yet we had this, this record voter turnout on both sides of the aisle. What, what do you think accounts for that? What, how would you explain that? Well, I don't think it's the pandemic. Uh, you know, people have speculated that voters were angry or disturbed or pent up or something. And so turned to voting as a remedy for that or a way to express their feelings about the pandemic. This is something that I think is part of the Trump era. Let's go back to the 2018 elections that were two years ago, pre-pandemic. None of us knew what the coronavirus was at the time. Uh, Trump was president, so this would have been his first midterm election that he experienced while in office. And turnout hit a record high in that midterm election. It was the highest turnout in 100 years in a midterm in the US. And this year's election also saw the highest turnout in a presidential election in about 100 years. Uh, all kinds of civic engagement indicators are up since Trump has been in office. People attending marches and rallies, even before Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of that brought people into the streets about policing and 
racial inequality, there were people doing marches on science and there was a women's march and uh, there have been pro-Trump rallies and a whole variety of things. It's something about Trump's presence in office that stimulates both his supporters and his opponents to get out and do things. It's, um, it's really remarkable. I, I don't have a full explanation for it, but he has stirred up you know, the electorate to participate in a way they had not before. I would never have imagined we would set a record high turnout in the midst of a global health pandemic <laughs> with so many people's lives disrupted by health scares, uh, even deaths in their families, economic woes, job loss, dislocation, managing kids who are doing virtual school. Uh, and yet two out of three eligible voters participated, which in the US is a big deal. So I, I really think it's a Trump phenomenon rather than a pandemic phenomenon. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I've, I've heard some researchers say, well, this whole Trump era, we can throw out the window when it comes to research around the campaigns and elections that we probably won't ever say anything like this again. But that'll be interesting to see, you know, in the future. Um, we really appreciate you coming and being with us. We know how busy you are, Dr. Burden, but thanks so much. You're, you're awesome. Uh, we appreciate the work that you're doing um, and the time that you've taken to, to share with us. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. And we really apologize again uh, to Dwayne The Rock Johnson for running out of time. And he's such a trooper. Um, he assures me that he will be back next week for his regular appearance. So we look forward to seeing everybody on Two Ball Guys next week. Great. And thanks, Eric, for being such a great co-host. Thank you, uh, Dr. Burden, for joining us today. It was a fascinating discussion. And I look forward to seeing everybody next week for another episode of Two Ball Guys. <laughs>